Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. Dan Amender here. On behalf of all of us at Cardiners, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by Cardiners and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Mentz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to section 7.6 of the 2022 AHA ACC HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by pre-medical student and CardioNerds intern Pacey Wettstein, answered first by Baylor College Medicine Cardiology Fellow and CardioNerds Ambassador Dr. Jamal Mahar, and then by expert faculty Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. Dr. Schweitzer is Professor of Medicine, Vice Chair of Clinical Research for the Department of Medicine, and Director of Clinical Research for the Division of Cardiology at Washington University School of Medicine. She's the Editor-in-Chief of Circulation Heart Failure. Dr. Schweitzer is a faculty mentor for this Decipher the Heart Failure Guideline series. And Dr. Schweitzer, it's an absolute honor to have you here with us. Tio, thanks. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm a big Cardio Nerds fan. So we're going to start with a question. Pacey, do you have any dilemma that you want to discuss with us? Sure. Here's a great case to discuss. Mr. Flo Zinn is a 64-year-old man who comes to discuss persistent lower extremity edema and dyspnea with mild exertion. He takes amlodipine for hypertension, but he has no other known comorbidities. In the clinic, his heart rate is 52 and blood pressure is 120 over 70. Physical exam reveals mildly elevated jugular venous pulsations and one-plus bilateral lower extremity edema. Labs show an unremarkable CBC, normal renal function and electrolytes, an HbA1c of 6.1%, and an NT-proBNP of 750, with no prior baseline available. On echocardiogram, his LVEF is 44%, and nuclear stress testing was negative for inducible ischemia. What is the best next step in management? A, add furosemide, BID, and daily metolazone. B, start empagliflozin and furosemide as needed. C, start metoprolol succinate. D, no change to medical therapy. Jamal, what do you think about this case? Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here and talk about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. It's interesting over here. So the correct answer is actually B, to start in baglofloxin and furosemide as needed. The patient described here has heart failure with mildly reduced EF, given a left ventricular EF in the range of 41 to 49%. In patients with heart failure who have fluid retention, diuretics are recommended to relieve congestion, improve symptoms, and prevent worsening heart failure. This is a class one level of evidence B. 
For patients with heart failure and congestive symptoms, addition of iazides, such as metalazone, to treatment with a loop diuretic should be reserved for patients who do not respond to moderate or high-dose loop diuretics to minimize electrolyte abnormalities. This is the class 1 level of evidence B. Therefore, option A is not correct as he is only mildly congested on exam and likely would not require such aggressive decongestive therapy, particularly with normal renal function. Adding a thiazide diuretic without first optimizing loop diuretic dosing would be premature. Emperor Preserved showed a significant benefit of SGLT2 inhibitor empagliflozin in patients with symptomatic heart failure with a left ventricular EF of greater than 40% and elevated natriuretic peptides. The 21% reduction in primary composite endpoint of time to heart failure hospitalization or cardiovascular death was driven mostly by a significant 29% reduction in time to heart failure hospitalization with no benefit on all-cause mortality. Empagliflozin also resulted in a significant reduction in total heart failure hospitalizations, decrease in the slope of EGFR decline, and a modest improvement in quality of life at 52 weeks. Off note, the benefit was similar irrespective of the presence or absence of diabetes at baseline. In a subgroup of 1,983 patients with LVEF between 41 to 49%, in Emperor Preserved, empagliflozin, an SGLT2 inhibitor, reduced the risk of primary composite endpoint of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure. Therefore, in patients with heart failure with mildly reduced EF, SGLT2 inhibitors can be beneficial in decreasing heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular mortality. This is a class 2A level of evidence B. Furthermore, by inhibiting glucose reabsorption in the kidney, they have a diuretic effect, which may help ease congestion and limit loop diuretic dosing. SGLT2 inhibitors are beneficial to the vast majority of cardiovascular patients, but are contraindicated in patients with type 1 diabetes or prior episodes of diabetic ketoacidosis, as they may cause euglycemic DKA. Option C here is incorrect. Among patients with current or previous symptomatic heart failure with mildly reduced EF, use of evidence-based beta blockers for heart failure with a reduced EF, RNAs, ACE inhibitors, or ARBs and MRAs may be considered to reduce the risk of heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular mortality, particularly among patients with an LVF on the lower end of the spectrum. This is a class 2B level of evidence B. However, the patient's heart rate is already low, so initiating a beta blocker would not be appropriate. Switching his calcium channel blocker to ARNI may be considered in this case. Option D is not correct, as we can counsel him on lifestyle and medication changes, which can relieve his symptoms and reduce his risk of heart failure hospitalizations and mortality. So the main takeaway from this question is, in patients with heart failure and mildly reduced EF, diuretics are useful for decongestion and symptomatic improvement, which is the class 1 recommendation. And there is a role for GDMT, including SGLT2 inhibition. This is a class 2A recommendation, along with beta blockers, 
RNAs, ASNRs, and ARBs, and MRAs, which are a class 2B recommendation. So Dr. Schweitzer, I would love to get your thoughts over here, specifically about how you think heart failure with mildly reduced EF is somewhat of a distinct entity, and if you have any pearls to share with us over here. Yeah, thanks, Jamal. So, I, I mean, I think this is a great case for a lot of reasons. One reason is that, you know, while several of the answers aren't really wrong, there's one best answer, and that's obviously the SGLT2 inhibitor. And the reason for that is that, you know, a heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction is a relatively newly recognized and newly named entity. And these patients have never been tested in a randomized controlled trial all their own. In fact, they're always just included in um, HEFPEF or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction trials, most of which drop down to ejection fractions of 45 or even 40%. And then in post hoc analyses, we look at the benefit of the drug across ejection fractions. The only one of those trials, as you all know, that's ever been positive until very recently was the Emperor Preserved trial, which met its primary endpoint of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalizations. We now also have the DELIVER trial of dipagliflozin, which showed the same thing by meeting its primary outcome of a reduction in cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalizations. However, both of those trials included patients down to ejection fraction of 40%. And so in the new guidelines in 2022, I think we can say they give it a level of evidence 2A. I expect it'll be a little bit better than that, perhaps a level of evidence one in the next set of guidelines, because we now have two randomized controlled trials showing benefit in this group of patients with lower ejection fraction. In my clinical practice, I really see patients with ejection fraction that's not truly normal as patients with reduced ejection fraction. I mean, an EF of 44% is a reduced ejection fraction in my book. And so I'm pretty aggressive with these patients in terms of trying to get achieve guideline-directed therapy for low EF heart failure, heart failure with EF less than 40% in most of these patients. And often there's excuses to do it. They're diabetic. They um, have hypertension, other reasons to perhaps use some of these drugs. As uh, I think you all know, in the Paragon trial, which tested acupatril-lilsartan from an ejection fraction of 40% on up into the normal ejection fraction range, Again, Paragon didn't meet its primary endpoint, but in subsequent analyses by ejection fraction, the drug seemed beneficial in those with the lower ejection fractions in that trial. And in fact, the FDA has approved the drug for ejection fractions less than 57%, which was the median ES in the Paragon trial. So I'm pretty aggressive, if I can get it paid for, at trying to get these patients on Secubitril Valsart. The other interesting thing is this patient presented with edema and is being treated with amlodipine for his hypertension. And I would certainly probably stop his amlodipine because, as you all know, a side effect of amlodipine is lower extremity edema, and his symptoms may get better. He may need less diuretic, not being treated with amlodipine. And then I would use HEFREF therapy to treat his blood pressure. In particular, I'd try to get Secubitril Valsartan, but if I couldn't, I'd use another angiotensin-blocking drug. I'd probably put him on spironolactone if his renal function and potassium allowed. Again, even though TopCat wasn't a positive trial, it showed benefit of spironolactone 
in the lower EF patients enrolled in that trial as well and in sub-analyses. So, and spironolactone is a pretty good antihypertensive and the patient has overt volume overload. So again, in addition to the SGLT2 inhibitors, it's a class 2B recommendation in the guidelines to use the other guideline-directed therapies for half-breath. And in my practice, that's absolutely what I would do with a patient like this. Dr. Schweitzer, thank you so much for sharing your expert advice on this case. And thank you, Jamal, for your explanation on the case. Thank <laughs> you.